Do you want a cash-flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom? Sunsets and palm trees on your terms. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags-to-riches real estate millionaire who started with no money or credit and quickly grew a multi-million dollar portfolio of cash-flowing apartments. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life. And the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson. And today, we're going to talk about tax strategy and how to really, really make sure that you're not paying any, right? And so I brought in my good friend, Eric Oliver, with Cost Segregation Authority. We're going to go into the good, bad, and the ugly of cost segregation, why you should pay attention. What is it? If you don't even know what it is, we're going to go over just the fundamentals of how it works. When we go into the weeds, pretty good. So this one, we actually really delve into. I had a lot of questions that I just had personally as well to help understand and flush out how you should be using a cost segregation study to get full maximum value and depreciation. So you guys are going to like it. Before we get to that, though, a word from our sponsor. Are you ready to take your multifamily game to the next level and learn the amazing results of living the cash flow life? Apartment investing can change your life. I know for a fact it's changed mine, and I would like to share my extraordinary journey with you and the clues I've learned along the way by giving you my book, Copy Your Way to Success, for free. So text the word book, B-O-O-K, to 480-500-1127. Again, that's the word book, B-O-O-K, to 480-500-1127. And my team will ship it to you absolutely free as a way to say thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember, your paradise is possible. All right, we're back. So guys, again, this is going to be a great episode. You're going to want to turn in, take some notes. Eric does a really, really good job of understanding why you should be using tax, cost segregation, why it matters, and really the ins and outs of all of it. So guys, let's get into it. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, thanks for having me, Corey. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you on. And it's always good to bring people that I do business with. Like, we really do business together in real life. This is not, oh, hey, my VA made a connection, so I'm going to put you on the podcast. This is a real one, guys. This is someone that I use in my daily business. And we're going to talk today about cost segregation. So, Eric, before we get too much into it, why don't you give everybody a good introduction about yourself and your company and kind of who you are and where you're at? Yeah. No, thanks, Corey. As you mentioned, my name is Eric Oliver. I'm with a company called Cost Segregation Authority. We're kind of a niche accounting firm where we just do cost segregation. So we work with CPAs, investors across the country, really maximizing their tax savings through cost segregation. And so my background, my degrees in accounting... Born and raised in Salt Lake, moved to the East Coast for about 13 years in New York and Richmond, Virginia, and then headed back out west here to Salt Lake for the last seven. Been with this company for seven years. The company's been around for just about 20 plus years now. And like I said, we just love working with investors trying to save tax dollars through cost segregation. And it has been a wonderful time for cost segregation. But because my show is filled with new people, old people that have been in the business, some very seasoned, I still think we need to understand and talk about truly what is cost segregation? What does it mean, right? And why should you care? Yeah, so cost segregation, Corey, really, it's just accelerated depreciation on your real estate. So one of the benefits of getting into real estate or owning real estate is the ability to take depreciation as an expense. So 
Commercial real estate depreciates over 39 years. Residential units depreciate over 27 and a half. So just to make the math easy, let's say I go buy a single family home for 275,000. I divide that 275 by 27 and a half. That's going to give me a $10,000 write-off every year for the next 27 and a half years, which is great. I'll take a $10,000 write-off all day long. The problem is we're probably not going to own that real estate for 27 and a half years. Hell, my wife tells me the way I eat, I probably won't be around in 27 and a half years. So for that reason, I need to take my deductions now, right? I don't want the IRS to hold on to these for 27 and a half years. Give me my deductions now. And the way we do that is through an engineering-based study where we go and identify the short-term assets in that example, in that single family home, and we accelerate the depreciation on that. So a single family home has things like carpet. Carpet's a five-year asset, according to the IRS. Appliances, a driveway, an irrigation system, a fence, all those things the IRS says should depreciate faster than 27 and a half years. But as you know, Corey, if I buy that for 275000 I give my closing statement to my tax preparer. My tax preparer doesn't know what the value of the carpet in that building is. They don't know the value of the cabinets. And so that's where a cost segregation study comes in. We identify those components, put a value to them, which allows you to accelerate those and take them at a faster rate. That is the key to it, guys, is that it allows you to say you don't just have a building plus land. You have a building, but you have all these flooring, fixtures, appliances, all the little stuff in between. And those are all rated and they have a different lifetime value, right? So let's talk about then the current way it's structured right now is I believe it's what, one year, five year, seven year, and 15 year? Yeah, close. Yeah, you were close. So typically our reports, we take a 27 and a half or 39 year asset, yep. and then we identify five year assets, five. seven year assets, and 15 year assets. Okay, correct. five, seven, and 15. Yep. Right? Yep, you got it. And you're going to assign a value for all those things, right? And then you get this big number at the end, right? So what can you do with that number? Because I think that's what's changed in this year is something that you got to pay attention to. Yeah. So remember, we identify five, seven, and 15-year assets. Usually that's about 30% of the total cost. So if you were to buy a million-dollar building, we would identify about $300,000 worth of five, seven, and 15. Now, in the past, we want to accelerate that over five, seven, or 15, which is better than 29 or 27 and a half, because those deductions taken earlier, again, allow you that expense, which creates cash flow. There's something called bonus depreciation, which has been around for a number of years. The IRS uses bonus depreciation kind of as a lever to stimulate the economy. So they say, okay, the economy's not doing this well. We're going to issue 100% bonus or 50% bonus. And what that means is, is they incentivize us to go out and buy stuff at the end of the year so we get these tax write-offs. They say if it's 50% bonus, for example, and you go out and buy a million-dollar bulldozer, Instead of depreciating that bulldozer evenly over 15 years, we're going to allow you to take 50% of those deductions or 500000 all in the first year. So again, that incentivizes people to go out and buy stuff. Well, end of 2017, beginning of 2018 with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, as many of your listeners know, Donald Trump was our president. As many of them know, Donald Trump owns real estate. And so when he revised the tax code, it was very favorable to real estate investors. And a couple of things changed. One is at the time, bonus was 50%, and they changed it to 100%. So any assets placed into service between 927 of 17 and 1231 of 2022 were eligible for 100% bonus, which is huge. The second thing is, I think it was quite slick how they did it. They added five words to the tax code. 
in the past, in that bulldozer example, you would have had to buy a brand new bulldozer. You couldn't go out and buy a used bulldozer. It had to be brand new. In the tax code revision, they added the words, new to you, the investor, or excuse me, the taxpayer, new to you, the taxpayer. So if I go buy a building that was built in 1980, it's new to me, the taxpayer this year, I'm now eligible to take bonus. And if you think about it, bonus has to be on assets with a useful life of 20 years or less. So if you don't do a cost segregation study and you buy an apartment building, that apartment building gets treated as a 27 and a half year asset you're not eligible for bonus. But if you do a cost seg study and re-identify 30% of those assets into that shorter asset life, five, seven, or 15, those are all 20 years or less, you get 100% bonus on all those assets. Remember I said, we're usually segregating around 30%. So you buy a million dollar asset, we segregate 30% or 300,000, and you get 100% bonus on those? That means you're getting a $300,000 write-off in year one. Now, as you mentioned, Corey, that does start to phase out. So the phase out period is any assets put into service in 2023 receive 80% bonus. 2024, it drops to 60, then 40, and then it's 2027 when it's down to zero. But or until the administration changes, or if the economy shapes up and we find ourselves in a recession this year, then the Congress will get together at the end of the year and say, hey, maybe we should extend 100% bonus. It's not set in stone, but that's kind of the current phase out period. There's always things that'll happen. This is government at its best, right? Right. Now, but this is how wealthy people pay the game. You got to pay attention to the rules and the game. And what your congressmen and women do and presidents do does matter, right? So I took advantage of that 100% bonus. We bought like maybe six or seven really pretty decent big assets. And we're able to get a lot of depreciation. Some of these things were like three to four or five million dollars of depreciation. And the cool thing about the depreciation is once you receive it, it carries forward forever. Yeah. If you get a $4 million deduction, but you can only utilize the million of it, you just wipe out that million of income, that extra 3 million carries forward and you wipe out your next 3 million of income. You never lose it. Yeah. And that's the big piece. Now, this is all check with your CPA stuff, guys. So we're talking about stuff that you should consult because in order to usually take that depreciation as I'm doing it, I'm using it as an ordinary income. I am a real estate professional, meaning I work at least 40 hours. I can't remember exact rules for it, but I qualify as a real estate professional. And then I can offset that depreciation towards my other income. And that is really a big, big deal, guys. It's not what you make. Most of the time, it's what you keep. I was talking to somebody the other day and they used a sports analogy and I thought it resonated, or at least resonated with me. But we're so busy playing offense. Let's go get the next property. How can we add more units? A lot of times we lose focus of defense. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you've got 30 properties. If you're paying a boatload of taxes on the back end, you can keep buying more properties, but your net income doesn't necessarily go up if you're paying too much in taxes. So being able to play defense, like you said, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. And that defensive part of that tax planning part is so important that I think a lot of investors underutilize it. Just like, hey, I want to make more money. Oh, I know what to do. Go buy more units. Well, it's like, yeah. I've seen people double the amount of money they make simply by putting a tax strategy in place and not buying any additional units. And so very important stuff. Exactly. Now, let's say, Eric, what if you're listening to this for the first time, new listener, you're like, oh, I bought two deals two years ago. And I've not done anything like that. I didn't know this thing. Can I go back to these properties? Can I then add cost seg to them now? 
Sure. So it's what we call a look back study, but the IRS allows you to, if there's a form you fill out, it's an automatically accepted consent form. It's called the 3115 or 3115. But that form basically tells the IRS, hey, IRS, I bought this building in 2015. I've been depreciating it, the standard deduction for the last seven years. I'm now changing the method I want to depreciate. I want to accelerate my deductions. Here's the difference in those numbers. And you get to take that on your current tax return without having to amend any prior years. It's actually interesting, Corey, you're checking a box on that form that says you're going from an impermissible method of depreciation to a permissible method saying, hey, IRS, my bad. I screwed up. I was depreciating my carpet over 39 years. My CPA didn't give me this information. I didn't have it. And now I do. Could have been depreciating it over five. My mistake. Guess what? That creates a massive deduction for me and I want my money back. And so, yes, you absolutely can. If you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh my God, I didn't know that. I had no idea. Eric, how do they get a hold of you real quick? Yes. Our website is great. I'll also give you my cell phone number. We've got People answering that 602-568-0032 is a way to get a hold of me directly. But we're happy to look at your portfolio. It's not for everybody. I don't go to costsegregationauthority.com. Dot com. Correct. Yes. Sorry if I didn't mention that. Yes. Costsegauthority.com. I just want to give you a quick plug. I'll let you come back and introduce yourself more officially. I just thought this is a great plug because I'm just telling you, guys, when you get like good information, if, if this is the first time you're hearing it, but now hopefully it's not. But if it is even if it was single family homes. If you're buying them as rentals, if you're keeping them, makes sense. If you're just flipping them, doesn't make sense. But if you're buying and holding, absolutely makes sense. Probably almost all the time. I don't want to say 100%, but almost all the time. Yeah. And Corey, just to add to that, you mentioned something about active income versus passive income. There are ways around that. A lot of investors, like for example, let's say I'm a high W2 winner, I'm a doctor. And I've got lots of W-2 income. If I go buy a long-term rental, I can't use those deductions to offset my doctor income. But if I buy a short-term rental, an Airbnb type property, and I manage it, I now can use those deductions to offset my W-2 doctor income. So there's ways around those. But it is important, as you mentioned, to talk to your CPA always first. But everything from single family rental homes, we've done basement apartments in San Francisco that created $200,000 deductions. So any revenue generating property is yeah. worth it. Just for you guys listening right now, this is how I approach and look at things, is to be curious, right? Instead of saying, hey, I want to do this, or can I do this? Because sometimes when you ask a lawyer or a CPA, can I do this? And they'll look at it from just the way you stated it, they're like, yes or no. Instead of saying, hey, how can I do this? This is where I want to go. What do I need to do in order to get this? I want to be able to take this depreciation. I'm a doctor, right? What's the right steps for me to take to be able to do this and be able to write this off as ordinary income, right? Or use that deduction. That's when you start getting better answers, by the way. That really is the key to this. It is. And I would agree. We partner with CPAs. So but CPAs are kind of your general practitioners. They know a little bit about a lot of different subjects. They just don't yes. have the bandwidth to dive deep into depreciation. And so they usually will partner with a group like ours to say, okay, how can we utilize these depreciation deductions for our clients? And so it's not that your CPAs are doing a bad job. It's just, I wouldn't go to my general practitioner for heart surgery. The same reason you wouldn't go to your CPA to talk. If you're in real estate and you're doing real estate stuff, you need a real estate CPA. 
that truly understands it. And like 90% of his business is dealing with real estate guys, right? Because he's going to be way more up to date on all the things that's going on in that tax code for real estate guys. Yep. No, you hit it on the head. Absolutely. Yeah. Specialists make money. Journalists make excuses. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so how long does it typically take to do a study? So the first thing we do is always do a benefit analysis. We want to take a look at the property first before we ever engage a client to say, hey, yeah, we're going to be able to save you significant tax dollars. Once that benefit analysis is done, and we usually can turn those around in 24 to 48 hours, but once that's done and you've signed the engagement letter, we've decided to move forward, we've talked to your CPA, everything looks good. First step is a site visit. Scheduling that site visit, the IRS requires us to go look at the property. And then once that's done, it's usually about three weeks from the time the site visit is completed that we'll have a final report back to yeah, you. Yeah, and typically that's the engineer that's going to go out to that site visit, right? Yeah, typically. Yep, we've got constructional engineers who will go out for some of the smaller properties, Corey, one of the greatest things that ever came out of COVID, which not a lot great came out of COVID, but one of the great things that came out of COVID was being able to do these site visits virtually. So for some of the smaller properties, we set up a video conferencing app where we've got a property manager on one end, our costing guys on the other, and we're able to do it that way. But yeah, look at the property, come back, put all the numbers in, run our formulas, and then get back to usually in about three weeks. Yeah. Awesome. And that preliminary study, guys, is gold, right? So we do that with you guys on everything that we do, Eric. Before you even buy it, you call us and say, hey, we're thinking about buying this property. Give us an idea of what we're going to get. Yeah. And this is why we do it is because we're able to take extracted information and put together our model to show our investors our potential depreciation schedule we're going to be sending them. And that's a big deal. When people want to know, hey, what's my depreciation per $100,000 invested, right? So we do that calculation based on that report. Now, typically they're very conservative on that report. And so usually when they actually go to the property, what happens, Eric? Yeah, we're always conservative. The old thing my mom used to tell me, under promise and over deliver, right? So we're conservative intentionally on our benefit analysis, but we usually come in three to 5% higher once we've actually done the studies. So yeah. And that seems to be the case in every time that you've done work for us. So it's like a added bonus that we weren't expecting because, again, this is good penciling. You plan for the worst and hope for the best, right? Yeah. And sometimes you get a home run, but most times you're okay with a double. Right. Right? Yep. Now, on a typical cost, I mean, cost segregations, are they expensive? That's a great question. So in the past, yes. So before bonus depreciation, there was fewer companies out there doing it. And cost segregation would really was just for your large commercial properties. You know, you're buying large multifamily office buildings, et cetera. Studies were seven to 10,000 typically. Costs have come down. Our range is anywhere from $3,000 for single family rentals up to $20,000 for large multifamily complexes. I know that's a wide range, but typically we're looking at square footage, acreage of the lot, and the type of asset are kind of the big three important things that we're looking at. Yeah. I personally don't think it's that expensive, right? So for even the big deals that we do, anticipated costs. And by the way, when they're doing that preliminary, they'll give you an idea of what they think the cost is going to be as well. So you can put that in your underwriting, right? Yeah, we always include that cost. And so it's a way to kind of have an idea of what all that stuff. So then you just plug those numbers into your formula for what you're going to raise. And it's just part of your closing costs in my mind, right? Yep. And it works really well. But the benefits of it are huge. I mean, right now, even at 80% for this year, even next year, 60%, it's still a big deal. It was a big deal before bonus was around. It was a big deal at 0% because you're still taking 30% of your building 
and moving it up to five. You know, a whole different, yeah, five seven fifteen. Yeah. The rich people play a tax scheme. Now we're going to talk about something that I and I know you get a lot of questions on this too. What you depreciate eventually, you sell one day and you have to what's called recapture, right? Yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So when you sell a building, you pay typically two types of tax. You pay capital gains tax and you pay depreciation recapture. And those taxes, one of the key formulas to those, how you calculate those tax amounts is how much depreciation you've taken. So I'm sitting here saying front load the hell out of it, take it all up front. And people will say, Eric, isn't this just a timing thing? If I take it all up front, that just gives me a bigger tax bill on the back. In actuality, it's not. And I'll kind of explain to you why it's not. But the idea is you take your deduction at a high rate. So I'm going to take my deduction today against my ordinary income rate of, let's say, 35%. In five years from now, I'm going to pay some of that back, not all of it, some of it back at capital gains rates of 20% or recapture rates of 25% and save the spread. And the reason I say some of it, and I'll kind of back into this example because I think it makes more sense, but let's say you buy a building for for a million bucks. And right. five years later, you sell it for $2 million. When you go to settle up with the IRS, you're telling them that everything has doubled in value over those five years, right? I bought all this stuff for a million. All this stuff is now worth $2 million, and they're going to charge you tax on that. In actuality, your land, your walls, your windows, they might have doubled in value. But this dirty, nasty carpet that's five years old is not worth double today what I bought it for. So why in the hell am I selling it for double what I paid for it and then paying tax on that? That's crazy. And so carpet is a five-year asset, according to the IRS. So in that example, if I've owned this building for five years, what's my carpet worth after owning it for five years? It's worth zero, right? So you don't have to pay any tax on that. So you don't have to recapture that. Right. A lot of CPAs, a lot of tax professionals out there will argue that all day long with the IRS. They're going to say, hey, you guys are the ones that told me it was a five-year asset. It has zero book value. I sold that stuff for zero. And so, again, the idea is, without getting too far in the weeds, is to take your deduction at a high rate, pay a portion of it, depending on how long you've owned it, at a lower rate at a future date, and save that spread. And that's really what we're doing with customers. Now, this is a big one for me. So, like, on these big assets we have for apartments, sometimes that five-year for apartments, you have a lot of things are in that five-year column, I feel like, right? And so... That's rather large. And so our typical hold time is five years. So if you, let's say you had a $7 million study and $4 million is in that five-year column. Right. Guys, what he's saying, I mean, just like, if you hold it to that fifth year, you don't have to recapture $4 million of taxes. This is the game, right? This is why wealthy people pay attention to what Eric's saying and then they take action on it because... Corey Peterson does not pay taxes, right? I'm not paid. Maybe like Donald Trump. Don't judge me, okay? But there's a reason Donald Trump don't show his taxes. Because he didn't pay any taxes. They all went out eventually anyways. And they're like, oh, you didn't pay no taxes. He's like, of course I pay taxes. Just not the ones that you want me to pay. Right? Right. And so, because he's in real estate, guys. Like, he uses all these things and depreciates. And you carry that stuff forward. So, it is what it is. And I'll add this because I think whatever your political beliefs are, whether you like Donald Trump or not, that's neither here nor there. But the IRS puts out their tax code. The tax code is thousands of pages. And the majority of those pages tell you how not to pay tax. There's only very few pages that say, here's when you have to pay tax. The reason for that is they will tax you on what they don't want you to do. And they're going to not tax you on what they do want you to do. They use the tax code 
to drive their policies and to drive it's their leverage. Yes, it's yep. leverage. And so they're like, listen, if you go buy real estate and you create wealth in the economy, that's a good thing for the US. And so we're going to incentivize real estate professionals to go out and buy stuff. And so it's not that Donald Trump has done anything illegal. Well, let me back up. He hasn't done anything illegal on his taxes that I'm aware of in terms of his real estate. Now, whether Correct. he's done stuff outside of that, that's a different debate. But what he's doing from a real estate perspective is he's got a team of great accountants who are looking at the code saying, yeah, we had a bunch of losses at our properties. And so we're going to use those losses to offset our income from other properties. And, and that's what every law-abiding, good businessman or woman should do, right? Yeah. And I think we all understand this. Take the politics out of it. You should be paying as little tax as possible as by the code, right? So use every loophole that you can that's written in there for us. And so if you don't have that knowledge, you've got to find a CPA. But Eric is one of those people that has the knowledge or his companies providing the value for what we do in real estate that really goes a very, very long way. Yeah, absolutely. So into that, here's my thought. Depreciation is a weird and crazy thing, and I don't think enough people understand it. If they have questions and they really like, hey, what does my building do, right? Because there's different classes, like there could be office space, there's industrial, all that stuff. And you guys have a plan for all that kind of stuff, right? Yep, we do it all. Absolutely. So each building will garner different results, but that's why we always run that analysis up front to give an idea. Why do you think so many people don't do it? Lack of knowledge. We're actually fixing that right now. I mean, with bonus depreciation, it's becoming way more popular because the benefits gotten bigger. So I think part of it was lack of education. And then part of it is a lot of us just trust our CPAs, which I'm saying you should trust your CPA. But I asked a CPA once, we did a presentation to a CPA who had thousands of clients. They said, John, you've only sent me three clients so far this year. I said, what the hell's going on? I know you got a lot of clients who own real estate. And he goes, Eric, I got to be honest with you. I get paid to do tax returns. There's tax preparers and there's tax strategists. He goes, I'm a tax preparer. I get paid when their tax return is done. I've got 1,500 tax returns I got to get done by April. And I've got nine IRS responses I got to get back to the IRS on these audits. I'm not worried about John and his duplex on whether I can save him a few thousand because that's not where I get paid. I get paid to file taxes. And so there's a huge difference between a tax preparer. That's when you go into H&R Block at Walmart. Those are tax preparers. They just take your information input it in their system and say, here's how much you owe. A tax strategist will sit down with you quarterly and say, hey, what are you buying? What's your income looking like this year? What assets do you have? What deductions do you have? and strategize with you on how to reduce your tax liability. Maybe you don't sell it this year. Maybe you sell it next year, right? Right. Yeah, on January 1. Yeah. Right? All, oh, you got extra depreciation this year. Maybe let's go pull some of our money from our IRA out this year, use these deductions to offset that income and pay no taxes when we pull that money. There's all kinds of strategies. And I just think a lot of us get comfortable with they may have been a great CPA when you had a W-2 job and it was easy to file your taxes. But if you own a portfolio of real estate, as you mentioned before, you definitely need to be working with a CPA who focuses on real estate and understands real estate. Yeah, I think that's a huge one, right? Like that is the reason why most people, I don't think they understand, right? Either they don't have the knowledge or they don't have the CPA that has the knowledge. And even though they may have the knowledge, is the time, right? And are they getting paid? Because a lot of times it's just follow the money, right? So the worst advice you'll ever get is free advice, guys, by the way. It's usually when you pay for good advice, you usually get way much better advice. Every time I've hired a cheap lawyer versus an expensive lawyer, a lot of times you get what you pay for. 
And I'll tell you a quick story. When I first started this, I was out looking for clients and I'm like, well, I'm going to target CPAs because they got books of clients, right? Well, I go to these CPAs and I was spinning my wheels saying, where's the business? Nothing's coming in. The moment I shifted to educating investors, if I tell an investor, I'm going to save you $100,000, they're knocking on my door saying, tell me how to do it. If I tell a CPA that I can save their client $100,000, that CPA has to find the time to do it, right? And so, and they don't always find the time, they're busy. And so go to somebody and tell them you're going to save $100,000. I got people lined up knocking on the door saying, hey, how do I do this? And so- Yeah, and then they're knocking on their CPA's door saying, hey, do this right here. Yes, exactly. And the CPA's like, gosh, damn, I just created more work for myself, <laughs> but whatever, right? Right. I've had that conversation all too often with CPAs. It's an awkward one. CPAs are great. They just don't have the bandwidth and I totally get it. And you wouldn't ask your general practitioner to do heart surgery. So, so I, get I got it. another question yeah. on the study itself, right? So let's say these studies are like, it tells you what all the stuff that you're going to be depreciating, right? Let's say I have yep. roofs, right? So I have roofs on my study. I've got a life value of that. But somewhere in year three, I'm like, I'm replacing all the roofs, Right. Yes. What do I do then? And how do I communicate that to my CPA? That's a great question because that's probably one of the things we see done most incorrectly by CPA. So if you don't do a cost sake study, you're going to have on your depreciation schedule, it's going to say building a million dollars, land 200,000. Then in year three, when you go to replace the roof, your CPA is going to take that $100,000 roof and add it to the depreciation schedule. It'll say roof, 100,000 with an in-service date of 2023, three years later from your original purchase. The problem with doing it that way is stuck in that building line where it says building a million dollars is your old roof. And now you're depreciating two roofs at the same time, the old one that's been disposed of and the new one. You're going a long time depreciating both at the same time. What should happen, Corey, is if you have a cost sake study, that line item that says roof from the cost egg study, when you dispose of that roof, you pull that off the depreciation schedule. You take what is called a partial asset disposition. You write that off in the given year as an expense and you never pay recapture on it. If you don't do it that way, you end up paying recapture tax on it. If you do it that way, you pull it off, get the expense in the year and pay no recapture. But far too often, I see depreciation schedules come to us and they say building, land, and then underneath that, it says roof. And I'm like, well, the old roof ever get pulled out of the original building? And the answer is no, because the CPA doesn't know the value of the old roof. So then what should I be doing as an entrepreneur and business owner for owning real estate? Should I be giving my CPA all the repairs, my itemized CapEx report? I went in and I replaced cabinets. I replaced carpet in 80% or 60% of the units. I did this, 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 all these things. What do I do? Yeah, always run that stuff through your CPA because there's all kinds of maintenance and repair regulations. Some of that stuff you actually can just expense in the given year, depending on what it is. Right. Other stuff needs to get capitalized. And your CPA, there's a matrix that determines whether it's capitalized or expensed. That stuff that is capitalized, though, we need to make sure we're pulling the other stuff off the books, which can't always be done. That's what I'm it. saying, right? So and I'm talking to that capitalization piece, not repair and maintenance, right? So the difference is new. Like, so if I'm putting new lights new countertops, new washer and dryers, new appliances, right? Now I'm going to accelerate all the depreciation. Well, it's already been there, but you got to pull it off. But you got to take, basically you're accelerating it when you say you're pulling it off. Am I right? No, no. For example, you buy a multifamily. We do a cost egg study. We determine that the original cabinets were worth 300000 
And then two years later, you go put in new cabinets for an additional 300,000. Those old cabinets, we're pulling that 300,000 off the books and putting a new 300,000 on with a new depreciation starting date. Yeah, a new schedule. Onto the schedule. And you don't need a cost saving study for that second set of cabinets because you'll have an invoice from the cabinet company that you would give your CPA to say, hey, these cabinets cost us 325,000. They take that number. They should be applying bonus to it because it's less than a 20-year asset. So they take that 325,000. If it was done this year, they would apply 80% bonus. The other 20% would get spread out over the useful life. So So there you go. So there's something that I don't think I've done. That was a question for me, by the way, guys, right? Because this is something that we've not done as good a job as to say, hey, listen, because I know we're doing a couple million dollars, $3 million of rehab, and we have not disclosed all the stuff that we did correctly. And so we're probably paying it twice, in my opinion, right? And I want to be able to take all that stuff off and then start a new depreciation schedule and get another bonus. Right, right. Yep. Because you already took the bonus once, but you get it again if you replace it again. That's the beauty of it. Exactly. So I've left money on the table. I can already tell. I mean, so now we're going back to my team. This has been a good one for me. I was like, man, I know I've not been doing this and I got to figure out why am I not? And I guess, how do I keep my records in a way? And I think it's really, I mean, it's in our accounting software. We just need to be able to say, here's our CapEx items. Here's all the things we did. And I need to put this into service. You need to make sure the old stuff is coming out of service so you're not depreciating both at the same time. Right. There you go. Okay. Awesome. Well, listen, I just want to thank you for your time here, Eric. Again, if people want to get a hold of your company, how do they find you guys? Yep. CostSegAuthority.com. So that's just www.costsegauthority.com. From there, my contact information is there. You can actually submit a form to get a benefit analysis on your property. So if you've got a property you want to look at, again, it's not for everybody, but I definitely would recommend running the analysis. It's the easiest sales job I've ever had. It's a math equation. It's like, pay me 4,000 or pay the IRS 40,000. Call me when you're ready. Or sometimes, hey, pay me 4,000, but you're only going to save 3,000. Hey, don't do cost sake. It's just a math equation. And so we just run the numbers It's not like some high pressure sell or anything. It's like, it's just a math equation. And we always want to get the CPA involved. Is it the right time? Because just because you can save money, if you can save more money next year, because you might, let's say, find yourself in a higher tax bracket next year, we want to have that strategy call with you as well. So again, www.costsegauthority is the best place to get a hold of us. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. Now, as we wrap up, any books that you've been reading lately that you've really enjoyed? Yeah. One of my favorite books all time, since I started doing this, there's a gentleman, he's actually in Arizona as well. Tom Wilwright, Tax Free Wealth is the name of the book. And it's a great book. He just came out with a new book. I haven't gotten the new book yet, but Tax Free Wealth by Tom Wilwright. Really, he's a real estate focused CPA. Yeah, Tom is the, exactly who I was thinking of when I said the comments of how do I do this? That's the way Tom thinks. And that's how Tom teaches CPAs. That strategy is like, listen, if we want to be creative in our thinking, right? Like we want to give advice and not just be CPAs, right? Right, right. So that would be a great book for anybody who's out there who owns real estate, who's paying taxes. It's a great book. Gives you some ideas on how to reduce your tax liability. Love it, love it, love it, love it. And then if you could give any advice to the guys that are people that are listening right now, what would you tell them? Know your strengths to know your weaknesses. 
that's the first thing. I had to learn that the hard way, Corey. I think I can do stuff that I can't do. And then I'm like, why am I taking this marketing initiative on? I'm not a marketing person. My design work sucks. What am I doing? So I've had to, over the course of my career, understand the things that I'm good at and I stick to those and then I'll outsource the things I'm not good at. That's the first piece of advice. The second one would be, which we've mentioned multiple times today, there's a huge difference between a tax preparer and a tax strategist. And if you have real estate, you better be over here with the tax strategist, not at line at Walmart, getting your taxes done at H&R Block because you're leaving money on the table. So cost you a little bit of money to get a tax strategist, but they're worth tenfold because they're going to save you tens or hundreds of thousand dollars in taxes if they know what they're doing. Always. Man, that's great advice. Thanks, Eric, for that. Yeah. So appreciate you coming on the show, guys. Hey, if you're listening right now, man, it really is. Again, at the end of the day, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Understanding tax strategy is super, super valuable, super important. It is how the wealthy play the game, guys. And with all that, it starts with an idea. It starts with the idea of like, hey, I don't want to be dumb in this section anymore. I'm going to go hire smart people. You don't have to be the expert, right? right. You just got to be able to find the expert. That's usually your job as the entrepreneur is to find the right people, put them in play, let them do the job, and most times shut up, right? <laughs> when you do that, magic seems to always percolate up to the top and unicorns show up everywhere, right? <laughs> Guys, that's the hardest part for some people is that shut up piece, but you're right. It is. Let the experts in and then sit back and watch the unicorns come up, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you guys believe it, you can achieve it and your paradise is possible.